is this as frictionless as possible for the consumer? Do we make it super easy? This is Sue Freck, and I'm your host of the Happy Marketer Connection podcast, brought to you by Vesta. Each week, along with my guests, other fellow passionate marketers, we will explore engaging and inventive marketing strategies and toast brands making impactful consumer connections. Please kick back, relax, and join our happy half hour of marketing inspiration and positivity, and come away a happier and smarter marketer. What I love about my company and the work we do is that we have the chance to work with some amazing people in the marketing world. Zachary Weinberg is one of those people. Zach is the director, Amazon Advisory for Gartner. He has 10 plus experience across Amazon and direct to consumer marketing. He's also had a really unique opportunity, which he will speak more about on the podcast, to launch a D2C business within a very large CPG company. As we heard in my last podcast, one of the most successful skill sets is being able to actually get things done. Zach is this perfect blend of strategy and execution, which is part of his secret sauce for success. You'll hear from Zach regarding trends in e-commerce and e-marketing, e-tailing, and working for Gartner. He is at the forefront of those trends, bringing insights and analytics to his clients. Today's theme is trends in e-commerce. You know, e-commerce has exploded and taken on this whole new life between quarantining, store closures, and social distancing mandates. Click-to-cart, online shopping apps, voice command, personalization are not new, but this world has changed and how they're viewed and used is. So let's dive in and hear from Zachary Weinberg about these trends that he's seeing and what the future of e-commerce looks like. So welcome back to another episode of the Happy Marketer Connection. Today I have with me Zachary Weinberg. Zach, thank you so much for spending the time with me today. Thanks so much, Sue. It's really great to be here. I know you and I uh, have a, a good, long professional history that has become almost a personal friendship here. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's exciting to be joining you. Yeah, these, these are my favorite kinds of, of podcasts, people that I, I know well, and yes, long history. <laughs> Won't date ourselves, but definitely goes back a couple of years. So I always start with an icebreaker. Let's talk about your title, you know, Director Amazon Advisory. This is a pretty good title to have these days. Can you just talk a little bit about what that title means, your role today, and uh, your work at Gartner? Sure, yes. Yeah. So uh, so I've been at Gartner for a little over a year, and yes, uh, the formal title is Director of Amazon Advisory. Um, but what that really means is a lot of daily contact with clients, um, helping them understand how to approach Amazon, both from a visibility standpoint, from a distribution perspective, um, but also a bit broader than that because it applies, a lot of the strategies apply to um, e-tailing in general. So whether it's bricks and clicks or whether it's pure play, the way that large manufacturers or even small businesses are interacting uh, with those customers of theirs. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely exciting. I mean, obviously huge push to e-tailing, e-com, Amazon these days, and we'll definitely get into that. So uh, for the listeners, you know, can we really start with your background? You know, how did you end up with this role, but certainly a career in marketing? That is a really good question. A career in marketing started probably in college when I was drawn to marketing because I've always been drawn to the consumer. And so I found marketing and advertising to be just a very exciting domain. And so I wrote a thesis in uh, my senior year of college on uh, online banner ads in online advertising. And so this was not to date ourselves, but many years ago. <laughs> so that was kind of like my first step into the digital marketing world, which is kind of where I've mostly always been. 
And uh, so I took a job out of college at like a small affiliate marketing agency. I then expanded a little bit to uh, an affiliate network. And as I started learning more about digital marketing, I realized there's this thing called customer acquisition. And if I wanted to be a more uh, a broader marketer in terms of my knowledge, my experience, I needed to get experience with customer acquisition across multiple channels and not just the affiliate channel. And so I was looking for roles where I can try to expand that. And I took a role at Quidzy, which, uh, which was Mark Laurie's uh, startup that he, uh, under diapers.com and soap.com, after it had been purchased by Amazon. And so I started working there, uh, managing affiliate marketing, but also managing paid search and managing cross-site marketing. So when there were, when there were websites that really aggregated uh, different pricing across multiple websites. Um, and so I was there for about a year and a half. And, uh, and again, I was thinking about how do I continue to broaden my understanding and broaden my um, experience. And really then it was just about, I need to learn business management. I need to learn product cycles. I need to learn how does this stuff get made and how from a business standpoint and from a P&L standpoint, do businesses think about these products uh, with the consumer lens? And so I, I first uh, went into business school and I was doing that part-time at NYU uh, while I was working and, uh, and I joined Reckitt Ben Kieser. To, uh, I guess that was seven years ago at this point. And so at Reckitt I had multiple different roles um, and it was always with the purposeful um, choice of how can I continue to broaden my experience from a customer acquisition and from a business understanding when it comes to being a marketer. Um, and so there were a few roles that I had within um, direct-to-consumer, uh, a couple of roles that I was uh, leading Amazon marketing and, uh, and innovation. And, um, and also uh, for a short time, I was the digital lead on, digital strategy lead on Musimix. And so all those sort of experiences together, everything that I've uh, kind of grown through in my career has been about getting more experience and more exposure within all of the different domains of marketing and whether that's specific customer acquisition channels or total business management and P&L management. That's kind of the way that I have been thinking since relatively early on in my career when I sort of discovered this is what I need to do in order to um, accelerate and sort of continue to progress. It's amazing that you had this foresight. And I guess it's your curiosity and wanting to learn, but to land and end up with a very successful career in, you know, the e-commerce and Amazon world. But to imagine, you know, you looking back that that's who knew that it was going to be this large and maybe you did, but I think it's really interesting. And maybe it's your curiosity um, and desire to continue to learn and get skills, but it certainly has made you a very successful marketer. So can you talk to me, you've been on both sides, you've been at Reckitt on the brand side, you're on the service side. What do you see as sort of the greatest difference between the two? The benefit or the pro of being on the client side is that you have all of the control. You make the decisions, and so you guys sort of decide what you would like to be doing, and then you go and you execute. But you also are constantly looking at for who is the best in class, who can we hold up and say what they're doing is amazing, and so how can we do that ourselves? On the other side of that, though, is the services side where you may not be the one making the decision, but what you are doing is allowing yourself to see all of the different ways that the clients are going to market and you have the ability to sort of ask them those questions and be able to weigh the different strategic perspectives and strategic approaches. So you actually get the visibility of all of the different strategies that the different companies are utilizing and leveraging. Unfortunately, you don't have the execution part of that. So I think that's the biggest difference uh, that I've found. Yeah, yeah. And do you have a preference of one or the other or are you just like the pros of each? (laughs) 
I think I like the pros of each. I think in my very long term sort of vision right now, where I'd eventually like to get to is um, having my own company where I am doing the execution myself. I think I, I enjoy for some reason marketing and operations. And so uh, in one of my roles while I was at RB, I found myself leading um, a D2C brand and there was a lot of deep operations that were required there. And I really, really enjoyed that. All of the setup and all of the sort of getting your hands dirty and in the weeds. Um, and that's something that I sort of it harkens back to the early date of my career, but it's something that I always sort of feel like I want to get back to eventually. Yeah, I love that that was such an entrepreneurial role also. I think that's also exciting that you have an opportunity at such a large organization to do something that moves at the speed of an entrepreneur or a startup environment. So I always thought that was uh, well-suited as well for you, but I would, I would have too loved being in a role like that. So let's talk about e-tailing, which is the theme today. Way back in like 2014, you had a role in e-tailing. You know, do you see this massive difference between, you know, back 2014 to 2020 today? Uh, can you just talk a little bit about the difference in those roles? Sure. Yeah, that was really fun. That was back when I started at RB. Um, and that was when Amazon had just launched paid search or paid advertising on their site. So the, the rule at the time, it was basically Amazon and everyone else with very little focus on everyone else. You know, there were things that we would do and to try to get visibility, but 95% of the revenue was driven um, on Amazon. And on Amazon itself, the index brands at that time really were owning all of the different categories. And so when I say index brands, I mean the names that people all recognize, the names that we all see, you know, on the shelf in the supermarket. So at RB, it was Lysol and it was Mucinex and it was Finish and it was Airwick. And so all of these well-known brands. And I think um, it's been five or six years now. And so between then and now, then it was the Wild West in the sense that you couldn't really ascertain exactly what your sellout data was from the consumer side, how much, what was Amazon sharing. You sort of had to try and piece it together directionally from the amount of inventory you sold into Amazon. And so that can kind of tell you, well, this is how much we're you know, selling to consumers. But now Amazon has shared a lot more data. There are multiple new organizations that are able to track the sellout data on Amazon as well and, and to sort of aggregate that for significantly deeper insights. Um, and so all of those tools, I think, have really, really grown and matured over the years. Yeah, I love the data component of it, data junkie as well. And then just the idea that there's companies that come out to help support, to give you insights and help make some better decisions as it relates to Amazon or, Amazon or even other, other retailers. So what about trends today? What, what are some of the biggest trends that you're seeing um, in, in e-commerce today? I think, I think obviously the pandemic really pushed everyone to start leaning in and the penetration on e-commerce now I think uh, close to about 30%, whereas it was less than 20% only six or eight months ago. Um, and so I think that that's the biggest trend for sure, just the overall adoption. Some of the more nuanced trends um, is the adoption of click and collect, which for a number of years, even back in 2014 and 2015, I remember we were talking about that. We were thinking about, you know, this has huge adoption in France and other places in Europe, but it's just not catching on in the United States yet. And so why is that? You know, what is the impetus that we need? There needs to be some kind of a catalyst. And I think that's the second biggest trend. The, the value that click and collect actually can bring to the everyday shopper, to the everyday consumer, 
is actually huge and we never really realized it until we were pushed and forced to say, well, actually, I'm not going to go into the store, but I can actually drive my car up and you can just put it in my car for me. Well, well that's cool. I'll do that because that's really easy, too. And so now there's this really big adoption uh, of click and collect. And I think that that is probably here to stay. Um, I, I don't see that going away. Yeah, I do think it's inc incredible how that that big shift has changed. And, and I think it's interesting. So you think it's here to say just the convenience. People just needed to try it. It was sort of, it's like sampling. You know, you need to try the product. You need to try the service. And once you do, you realize how valuable and convenient it is. Operationally, I mean, for retailers, that's a big change if they didn't have that ability. But now that, you know, most of them, at least all of the large ones do, I'm sure they're seeing the benefit as, uh, as well. How much during the pandemic has your client work changed also? That's a great question. A lot of it in the beginning, um, a lot of the conversations were about ramping up to e-com as fast as possible. Um, and so that was in uh, Q2, so between, let's say, like March and, I don't know, March and June, really. More so, more so May and June, because March and April were really just about, okay, this is happening and, and this is kind of crazy. Um, but then May, June time, uh, clients started figuring out like, okay, the internet is really booming. Our e-com channel is uh, completely overloaded. Like what is the low hanging fruit? What should we be doing and how can we be doing? And now the conversation has shifted to, okay, we're in this, we've reopened, um, cities have reopened, consumers have learned that online shopping actually has significant benefits to their lifestyle. And so how can we actually put in place strategies for the long term to acquire consumers? There is a really interesting research that we have about changing consumer behaviors across the pandemic that, that basically showed consumers are very willing to, uh, to try new brands and to try new modes of shopping and that they're also willing to stick with those. Yeah, it's so interesting. So when we talk, you know, we build online communities. Obviously, you've been a partner and client of ours with um, building the Musinex community. So when we think about the brands, there are brands that have come to us and said that, you know, we're flying off the shelves, you know, canned products that weren't before. And we do have that conversation about how do you now leverage this new customer base or this new audience base? Um, so that has certainly been a conversation. What I love about the work you do is you also get to see some of these trends way before other, you know, companies, companies do, or you have access or insights because of the great research that Gartner is doing. So um, you're certainly a, a, a resource for myself, but I'm sure many of the listeners as well. You know, what are some of, you know, when I think about the click and collect being such a big trend, wh why, why do we think that, you know, it was slow to adopt when it was so fast? You, you talked about France and Europe to pick up there. Sure. So I think that um, part of it was the retailers themselves that weren't actually taking, I think, the time to build it out as in, in, in such an accelerated fashion. I think that you had the Targets and the Walmarts of the world and the Best Buys of the world, really the big box retailers who have the ability and had it within their pipeline to continue to build out, click and collect. But it just wasn't the focus to do it as fast. And I think that once the physical store being inside that physical store was no longer an option for, let's say, whatever it was, a four or six week period. I think that was the time that they were able to say, well, so what are we going to do now in order to figure out an alternative channel? That's what pushed them to operationalize click and collect at a significantly faster pace. 
Yeah. And I think you're, you're so right. We talk about, you know, that experience. If someone does it the first, second, third time, and it's a horrible experience, but now that the retailer's caught up and it is actually a great experience, inventory is accurate. Um, the replacement of products is, is um, you know, satisfactory to, to customers, to shoppers. I think you've got just an overall better experience. When we talk about Amazon, which um, there's so many ways to obviously market your products on Amazon. What, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges that brands and clients have when marketing on Amazon or when, you know, marketing their products on Amazon? I think that one of the biggest challenges in the present time right now is that so many sway from these index brands. And if you are a well-known brand, if you're a manufacturer, it's becoming very difficult to defend against a lot of these smaller players who are coming in. And, and obviously there has been a lot of uh, news coverage about Amazon's ability to police their marketplace and to control either fake products or the way in which products get listed on their marketplace. Um, and so as a brand, one of the most challenging things you can do is actually try and win your category. It's very, very difficult to be able to keep all of those smaller players out. And, uh, and this definitely is a skill set, winning on Amazon, thinking about how do you position your content, thinking about the consumer needs through the digital channel versus the physical channel. It's a very different set of skills and it's a very different type of messaging than, um, than what many uh, more traditional consumer product companies or other manufacturers are familiar with. Yeah. And you talk about some of those brands and we work with some of those sort of startup or sleeper brands. You know, what do you see a huge difference if you're making a recommendation to obviously an index brand, a large scale brand brands you've worked at to a startup brand? Is there a difference in recommendations? Obviously the budgets are smaller, so they need to be really smart about their investments, but is there any other recommendation that you'd have with a, a big CPG brand versus a small independent brand? So that's interesting. Um, we usually find with clients that some of the smaller brands are resource strapped, but can be more agile when it comes to thinking about the way that they're going to make changes or position their content. And it's in fact counterintuitive that we try to help the CPG brands think more like those agile brands all back from my days when you had to make a content change or you wanted to change messaging, um, that had to be aligned with the brand team. You had to make sure you were on point with your message and that all of the creative assets were leveraged from already existing creative assets. Um, but when you look at the categories on Amazon, that's not what any of the smaller brands are doing. They're just communicating as they wish, as the consumer needs the information and what the consumer needs to understand as opposed to a much more intricate, uh, well thought out brand strategy. And so that's where really where we're coaching those CPGs to say, guys, you need to think more agilely, act more nimbly, take off some of those handcuffs when it comes to how much control you're putting on those detailing resources internally, let them try and win the consumer in the way that works best for the channel, as opposed to necessarily maintaining um, 100% of the, the brand integrity some of that more functional information becomes a lot more relevant through the digital channel. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Even when we're working with the large scale versus the, the independent brands, the, even the legal review <laughs> of content could, it's death by legal and regulatory, but, and it makes sense, you know, they're obviously at a much greater risk. You know, I was at farm in my early days, but it's certainly switching your message. Um, if it's an independent brand and you're talking to the, even the founder, very different than obviously you have agencies and partners and um, integrated teams that you need to get approvals through. You know, are there any categories or brands that have 
really surprised you in a really positive or negative way in their e-tailing strategy or along Amazon that's surprised you over the past couple of years or impressed you? <laughs> there are a few brands that do a very, very good job of integrating with Amazon. A couple of the, so Levi's is one that's really interesting because what they've done is they have created a, um, a unique extension of their brand. Um, I think it's called Signature by Levi's and, and it's, specifically for exclusive distribution on Amazon. This is something that's relatively new. We've talked to our clients about it a bit, but this exclusive partnership with Amazon, um, and these items typically are slightly lower cost. So the, the signature brand by Levi's is a little bit lower cost than the actual Levi's traditional product. Um, and so they do a really fantastic job. Um, and they, they've actually established themselves as a category leader for a while now because of it. Yeah, it makes so much sense. But you think about um, even, you know, the Costco's of the world, you know, when they say you have to make a certain pack size or a certain price size. So it makes sense that you're following suit for, for marketing on Amazon. So you see a lot of technology partners, you know, what, what have you seen over the last few years that you believe is the most innovative, either technology or, or strategy or partner that helps bring products to market? But um, what have you seen as the most innovative technology over the past few years? The ability, and this was sort of, I would say four years ago is when it really started to take shape, but the technology that allows the in-store plus online inventory to be as seamless as possible and also enabling those brick-and-click retailers to leverage in-store inventory for their online orders, where you can just pick something off the shelf, almost like you are your own drop shipper from your physical retail stores. That is the technology that I think um, has actually enabled many of the retailers who are winning in this pandemic era to have had the foundation necessary in order to make that possible and to make that shift so quickly. That's the that's one of the coolest technologies because it just it brought everything together, almost vertically integrated all of the online distribution centers with the physical retail spaces uh, from an inventory standpoint. Yeah, I love that. We were looking at integrating. So within the communities, you have all the imagery, obviously the sharing that happens, and then the click to cart right from the images. But what I loved about some of the partners we're looking at is the inventory component. They know immediately that you get that in your cart. You as a consumer selects the retailer or obviously the brand or client selects the, the preferred retailer, partner retailer, but they have that inventory and they'll make a recommendation if that product is out so you're not losing that sale. That inventory component for me also was really impressive because it, it creates that super seamless experience for the consumer. So I, I love that and we're looking to integrate that in and hopefully I'll get the founder on, on the podcast one day. So what's missing from e-tailing today? You know, is there a strategy? Is there something overall that you're seeing that can be done better? Or is it just, it's a constant evolution and you're, you guys are just helping your clients keep up? It is a constant evolution. We are, I think many of our clients lack some of the internal resources. I think their teams are still, they're still trying to figure out when it comes to the organizational structure, what are the right skill sets that they need? What are the right roles to fill? Um, and how do we approach this less like a traditional organization and more like, let's say, a D2C organization where we're leveraging a performance marketing approach to uh, looking at data, very quick test and learns, fail fast. That's sort of where the evolution point is right now. That's some of the research that I cover um, when I talk to clients and some of the research that I've written recently just about how to execute a performance marketing approach 
um, within a more traditional marketing organization and understanding that purchase funnel, understanding actual segmentations of the purchase funnel, and that you don't have to just optimize from the top of funnel only in the bottom funnel. There's opportunities to separate that out. There's opportunities to say, well, what if I optimize, you know, how many people add to cart versus only the conversion rate? Well, if you get more people adding to cart, then you actually will help push some of those people through the bottom of the funnel or even just looking at the checkout process very, very narrowly. So the only, like once a consumer has decided to put something in the cart and they say, all right, I'm going to check out now, just looking at that last, last step where you can say, well, is this as frictionless as possible for the consumer? Do we make it super easy? You know, when they put in their shipping address, is it automatically their billing address? Things like that that just make the consumer feel like this is almost a one-click checkout and it's really, really simple. Um, a lot of that is the evolution that I think we're sort of getting to now um, with that buying experience. Yeah, con continuing to make it frictionless. I, I think that the, your point is so valid that that is where they lose, you know, they lose the shopper, they lose the customer. Interested in building a home for your audience? Our Vesta solution powers online communities, giving your consumers a home for a world of engagement and connections. To learn more, visit us at vesta-go.com. So I, as you know, we have a smiley community, 1.2 million consumers, and we go to the community, we ask them a question. Um, we have gotten thousands and thousands of questions that said, if you could ask a marketer, a brand marketer, anything, what would you? And I sort of picked up one that I was hoping would be relevant to our conversation today. And this one member says that she's got a daughter that's graduating college, you know, with a degree in marketing communications. What advice do you have for someone that's looking for a role in marketing? You know, it, should they be taking this linear path? Um, should they be going back to school, business schools? What, what advice do you have for them? That's a good question. Well, first I want to say I love your community. We've worked, I've worked with the community and the content that they put out and just the way that they do things is great. They're all very, very authentic, which always as a marketer, you love to see because it's just real stories from real people um, for that user generated content. So I think that it's very difficult. Marketing is, is very, very broad at this stage. Um, I think it's always been broad, but I think it's even broader now that digital is truly entrenched. There's so many different channels of acquisition. There are so many different companies themselves that focus on just one component. There are the marketing technology companies that enable data collection. There are companies that focus only on CRM. There are companies that focus on only supporting CPG brands. There are companies that do so many different things and then there's all the agencies. You may not know exactly what you wanna do. For example, like a doctor doesn't know exactly what type of medicine they may want to practice. They know they're just interested in medicine, um, but they may have different parts of the body that might excite them or might they might find interesting. And so within marketing, if you're graduating now, I think that trying to figure out what um, excites you the most within marketing will at least help you narrow your focus on the kinds of companies that you would be interested in joining. Um, and so the types of either clients, if they're an agency that they typically interact with, or if they are a manufacturer or a brand company, the types of products and what category those products are in that they sell, because that'll allow you to at least start to try and explore maybe some passion areas, or just to get a better understanding closer to where you ultimately want to go. I think it's, I think it's really, really difficult for anyone just coming out of college in marketing to say, I definitely want to do this. And I know hundred percent, you know, I think, I think it definitely evolves. 
Um, and so that's the advice I would give. I would say, think about what you find most passionate about within all of these marketing disciplines and then try and focus on some of those companies where you think you can get the greatest learning. Do you think it's important that they go to a large company, um, particularly if they're thinking CBG startup versus large company, they're going to get some great foundational experience? Or do you think it's okay if they have this opportunity to go into a startup environment and get to touch everything? Yeah, I think both are okay. I, I don't think either one of those things matter. Um, I think there are personal preferences when it comes to do you want to be in a large or a smaller company, similar to when you pick a college. Do you want to be on a campus or do you want to be in a city, right? So those are personal preferences. But I think that the, um, as long as the startup has sort of the proper foundations when it comes to how they're organizing their business, um, I really wouldn't recommend joining a fly-by-night startup, but I would recommend joining one that has, um, you know, crossed a couple rounds of funding, has their executive leadership team in place uh, with the requisite experience, at least, for that team so that they understand the business and what they're really doing. I think that there are definite advantages to both. Of course, consumer product company, you'll just learn about all of the process and everything that they've just figured out over the course of decades to be the most efficient in manufacturing and, and the startups will bring sort of a different way of approaching the business. They'll bring such a, a quick and fast way of doing things that always is thinking outside of the box. And it actually can, can teach a lot of the young talent out there not to always approach a problem in the same way, but to constantly be thinking of, well, what would be another way of doing this? Or how can we accomplish this task? That scrappy mentality that I think a lot of startups uh, retain and have in their DNA. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, like you, I've had uh, experience in both. Um, I do think for, at this stage of my career, it'd be hard to go back to a large company, but I do see the, the value in both. Okay, so this is called the Happy Marketer Connection. So we like to end with a positive or a funny story, some sort of experience in your career at a company, personal life. But can you share a story with us to leave us on a positive note? Cool. I am going to leave you on a positive note via a I guess a failure experience, I guess maybe this is cliche, but when I was at RB, right, the last role that I had before joining Gartner was part of this incubator team where I was tasked with launching a new product and doing it really, really quickly. I think we had six months to come up with the product, the brand name, build a website and do everything. We did everything we needed to do from the product development side and from building the website and from launching it. And when we launched the metrics uh, and you know the, the revenue from the website was just not well. The consumers were purchasing and repurchasing the product. Um, this was a home fragrance product, was not as high as we needed it to be in order to sustain profitability over the long term. And so um, this, this became a business failure in the sense that we had to try and sell our inventory over Amazon because we were not confident that the website, the direct-to-consumer website itself was going to be able to be sustainable. But the positive sort of element here was the ability to learn and to gain the experience of how do you build a brand? How do you build a website? How do you partner with fulfillment and operations? How do you manage customer service? These were all the things that I actually needed to do myself in the very beginning. Um, I was there late at night responding to consumer emails. I was sitting down with the fulfillment and packaging company thinking about packaging designs. I was putting out surveys on SurveyMonkey trying to figure out what should my brand name be and what should my color palette be. And so all of those different components, having to being able to see all those different components, having to work through them, 
um, and learning all the different decisions and components of all of them was one of the greatest experiences I've had in my career uh, up until this point. Yeah, and just that, again, from beginning to end and building something, super exciting opportunity for you. So I love that story. Do you have a final thought, comments, you know, plug for Gartner? Obviously, you guys do incredible work and have incredible clients, but there's always, there's always room for listeners to partner with you. Um, and then how do people find and connect with you? So a couple of closing thoughts, I think. Yes, Gartner is fantastic. The amount of research that they have been and we have been publishing um, with regard to how you respond to COVID, how marketers need to think about it, what is changing, um, the consumer behavior that's changing. We just released a total interactive tool talking all about the difference uh, in consumer behavior that's been changing over the last six months, which is fascinating. Um, and so there's just a whole breadth of research, particularly if you're part of an organization that's trying to understand what to do. There's just so much stuff that we have available. If anyone wants to partner with me or reach out to me, they can find me on LinkedIn, um, Zachary Weinberg. One final closing thought that I had, and this relates back to um, the member question, but also just a general career sort of uh, approach, is figuring out how to be comfortable with ambiguity. And that is a really, really challenging thing. Being comfortable when you don't know what is happening and allowing yourself to just sort of embrace that is an enormous asset because it allows you to keep on plugging forward without having to focus on what is probably either a stressful or a tense period or moment, but it allows you to maintain progress. And so finding the comfort in ambiguity, whether that's changing organizations or restructures or when your role is just not clear or the team that you're going to be on is just not clear. Some of those things often have the ability to weigh people down um, and distract them from you know, the work that they're doing and, and what they want to accomplish in their career. And one of the things that, I, that I've learned slowly in is the ability to find comfort in that ambiguity and that it doesn't actually need to be distracting at all. It's something that sort of is, is up there and it's out there and it's a ball in the air. And when, you know, it's the right time to catch that ball, then great, that'll be the moment. But until then, it's okay for that ball to just sort of be in the air and to leave it there. So that would be my closing thought. I love that. I love that. It's a little bit of that risk taking, you know, you have to have a little bit of a leap of faith, but I love how you've positioned it. And I think it's great advice to your point for anybody. And it's always the stress of the unknown, but embracing it is certainly a good advice. Well, Zach, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Hopefully listeners will reach out to you, certainly from your expertise in, in Amazon, but also just reaching out to you for any partnering with Gartner. And I thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me, Sue. It's great to catch up with you and have a, a fun conversation on detailing. Zach, it's always so much fun talking marketing shop with you. And of course, I've loved working with you over the years. I really appreciate the feedback and reminder about embracing ambiguity as well. To hear more stories and lessons from other happy marketers, please be sure to subscribe to the Happy Marketer Connection podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about community building, our Vesta solutions deliver community-powered marketing to elevate your digital presence, deliver predictive insights, and transform your consumers into lasting brand advocates. This world is fast and ever-changing, and Vesta is here to help you future-proof your business via community-powered marketing. I also welcome you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Sue Freck, or find us at Vesta-Go.com.